0: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for standing with me as we read God's word together. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 18. We're going to read 13 verses, but take heart, we're going to move quickly through them. Uh, starting in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 18 Jethro said, Great, strong southern name, right? <laughs> Jethro, my friend. I knew a few Jethro's. (laughs) Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. A very significant verse. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they had dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, by the way he was talking to Moses when he said that, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, "'What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening?' And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and the other, and, very important, I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. That's pretty important work, isn't it? Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. You may be seated. We're continuing a sermon series. This is part six of our series called Exodus. Uh, We are working our way through the book of Exodus, but we're really more focused on the story of the Exodus. So soon we will depart the book of Exodus and move into the book of Numbers as we follow the storyline. We're not preaching uh, verse by verse through the entire book of Exodus. You have figured that out by now. If so, we're moving very quickly and you've missed a bunch of sermons, right? Oh, come on, that was funny. That's, that's not what's happening. We're just, we're skipping the high points because it's a narrative. This is a narrative, so we're trying to unpack what the narrative is. Uh, this is really the story of the Israelites' flight from bondage um, in Exodus, or I mean in Egypt, but it's really more about their flight from bondage in general, and how do they escape bondage? We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Their biggest problem was rebellion, but it wasn't just Pharaoh's rebellion or the Egyptians' rebellion. Ultimately, from this point forward especially, their biggest obstacle is going to be their own rebellious hearts. And how do they escape into the freedom that God's calling us to away from bondage? In their story and in our story, God calls us away from something but also towards something. So we so often want to escape bondage, we want to escape suffering, we want to escape difficulty, and that's not a wrong sentiment in and of itself, right, in a vacuum, although at times God calls us to to bear up under suffering. Um, If you don't know that that's the case, you should read the New Testament a little bit more closely than you do, uh, because throughout the story of Christianity, and really the story of the New Testament, it's a story of people suffering, especially suffering for what they believe. So, for us to think that we're going to automatically be given a free pass out of that is not faithful to the biblical narrative. And yet, I get it. Like, I'm with you. And when I'm suffering, one of the prayers I'm going to pray is, God, can you make that go away? Is that wrong? No. Not at all. But I have to understand that God doesn't just call us from something, He calls us to something. So, so often, and I think I used this reference either last week or the week before, you especially see this with uh, uh, vocational changes, job changes, right? God, let me out of here. God, let me out of here. God, let me out of here. God, deliver me from these evil people, right? We pray. I'm not saying it's an accurate prayer. I'm just saying we pray prayers like that, right? Maybe a little exaggerated. And yet, so often, we should be asking, God, are you calling me to something else? Are you calling me to a different place are you caught? What's next for me, God? It's not just moving away from something. It's also moving towards something. And this is a really important part of the story of the narrative of the Exodus. Listen up. It's very important. God didn't just set them free from suffering so that they could live their own life and their best life now, right? And whatever you want to do and go conquer and you're free to follow your heart's desire. Oh, American. Oh, American no they were set free to serve god you're going to serve something and serving your own appetite is not a good recipe for success or for fulfillment or for joy or for peace contrary to what our culture tells you everything's not easy peasy your phone won't do everything for you (laughs) There are some difficult things that just have to be done, and and God calls us to follow Him and to walk with Him, and sometimes it's not an easy place to be. So today is part six. Our sermon title you see on your note sheet, hopefully you got a note sheet on the way I've been having a little bit of trouble with my printer trying to figure that out, Uh, but I I think everybody got a note sheet that wanted one. Uh, Part six, our sermon title is Leaving Chaos Through Wisdom. Leaving chaos through wisdom. And I just got to tell you, this is a really odd story. This is a really odd little narrative in this grander narrative of the Egyptian or the Israelites moving out of Egypt and moving toward the promised land. This is one that just makes me scratch my head. And in fact, when I was trying to figure out which parts of this story are we going to preach through, and I wound up there through a lot that I just we don't have time to do everything. There were some things that we just decided we we're going to keep those for another day. And yet I also knew there's such an important principle here that we had to catch this one. A life of chaos is left behind when we pursue wisdom and order. That actually order is spiritual. Being organized can be a very spiritual thing. Did you know that? Can I tell you what I knew when I asked that question? 50% of the people would say, yes, amen, praise God. And the other 50% of the people would say, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I'm not saying amen to that. And those two people are married to each other. (laughs) Do you know how many times, I didn't hear that, but I bet it was funny. Do you know how many times in 20-plus years as a pastor I've counseled a married couple and at some point I had to stop them and say, you guys know you're not arguing about car keys, right? <laughs> like, I get that you're talking about car keys, but this is bigger. This is we, like we... So, my point is, for some of us, this comes naturally. I'm one of those people. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual gift that I've also worked hard to develop, especially when you pastor, you know, non-mega churches. A lot of times you get to be your own executive pastor. So, you better figure it out, man. Because it's not just about preaching. It's about making the trains run on time. That actually is not an unspiritual thing. You know how I know that? Because when God created the world, He created, say it with me, the solar... Yeah, say it. System. Yeah. You didn't know if that was the right answer, did you? The solar panels? Right? Right? No, the solar system. God works in organization and in structure and is not an unspiritual thing for us to have that in our lives. Now, for those of us to whom it comes naturally or we care about it or we're a little bit on maybe what you call the high-strung side, you can take that too far because often God doesn't care about your system. He does, but He doesn't. He honors systems because that's how the world works. And yet at times God says, I'm just going to work the way I'm going to work. So how do you balance that, Tim? Uh, That's what we're here to discuss together because I don't have an easy answer for you. But today we're going to dig into the side of having structure, having organization is actually a good and godly thing. I bumped into this little verse, which you've probably read before. I know I've read it before. Colossians 2.5. Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, who, by the way, were struggling with what we know as the Colossian heresy, and Paul wasn't necessarily concerned that they were heretics... He was concerned that they were surrounded by heretics. And so, you guys are in a really unique context where you kind of need a, I hate to use this word, but it's the right word. You kind of need a theological vaccination, right, against some of the heresy that's going on around you. And yet, right in the middle of it, he, he dumps this, right in the middle of these warnings. He says this, Colossians 2.5, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your, what are the next two words? Good order. Good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So the, the term that he uses there, good order, I don't know if he particularly means it this way, but the context of the word is that it's, it's actually a military term. And what it really means is that you are drawn together in an orderly array. Like you're arranged by, you can hear the echoes from Exodus 18 right there, right? you got, you got groups of tens and groups of hundreds and groups of thousands. Think about military order. And some of you have served in the military, so you get this, right? Things are structured. Things are in order. So maybe sometimes it's helpful for us to think about the opposite, right, to, to really illustrate this. So in the military, what they don't do is say, hey, everybody come here. Here's a gun. Everybody go shoot somebody. <laughs> Thank God they don't do that. That you, that's how you get to lose, right? No, we need to have structure, we need to have order, we need to have organized roles and assignments, and we all need to have, know what our job is, right? That's the word that Paul uses here. I'm rejoicing to see your, listen, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now this is the question for commentators and theologians, and I'm not going to say that there's one right answer. I think it's an intriguing question. Do the two things go together? Do you have a firmness of your faith in Christ for them specifically because they had good order? I don't know, but I think it's an intriguing question. Paul was rejoicing. I understand that he's rejoicing over the firmness of their faith, but he's also rejoicing because they seem to be somewhat organized in some way. It's fascinating. So chapter 17 which in, in Exodus, which we skipped over, uh, you get the story of water from a rock. Remember Moses strikes the rock and they get water from the rock. So you see a lot of, especially early in the story of the Exodus, uh, they're thirsty a lot, which is understandable. And God's providing water for them to drink a lot, which is pretty, has to be pretty encouraging, right? I mean if you think about wandering around in the wilderness thirsty and all of a sudden water is coming around miraculously, that's a pretty significant thing. I mean what should that do to our faith? It should really shore it up. It should really build it up. And so they get water from a rock, and then they fight the Amalekites, which is, again, another story that I wish we would have had time to preach and unpack. Because you, many of you, not all of you, but many of you remember this story. Maybe you remember it from being a kid in Sunday school, right? That the Amalekites attack, and Moses sends Joshua out to fight the Amalekites, and he goes up on the hill, and he stands up, and he holds his hands up with his staff, right? And when he's holding his hands up, they're winning, And then you guys tell me, what happens when he puts his hands down? Well, then he gets tired. So he gets Aaron and her, and they come up, and they give him a rock to sit on, and they help him hold his hands up, and Joshua just demolishes the Amalekites, right? How much much fun is that, I mean, in Christian love? (laughs) I mean, I'm a man, I don't want to tell you, that's awesome, right? He just wipes them out. Uh, And then you get this curious story. I read one commentator, and I don't remember which one, but one of the commentators said, "I find it interesting that the narrative didn't just say they had a family reunion in the desert and then moved on, because here comes Moses' father-in-law, right? Which is a whole nother sermon. <laughs> it was a father-in-law joke. Sorry." <laughs> Here comes his father-in-law. So they have this little kind of family reunion. And by the way, this is significant because, again, it's a story. Just like your story is a story and whatever happens to you today or tomorrow or what happened to you Friday night or whatever, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a part of a narrative. They're on the way to Mount Sinai. In fact, that's what we're going to be hitting really soon. Does anybody remember what happened at Mount Sinai? I mean, Moses encountered the burning bush, but what's about to happen at Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments, right? This is, one of the, this is a high point in this narrative. So, I mean, how do you slow down enough to tell this story in that context? Well, everything that's in Scripture is in there for a reason. And God thought that we needed to hear this story. It's a curious incident to record, and it's actually really curiously placed. So, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack three, quickly, three observations that I think are really useful for us to remember. Listen to me. My goal today is not to make you feel guilty about anything. It's to encourage you. Because the overall theme here is that Moses was doing good work. And I think many of us get distracted by doing work that doesn't matter. But do you know it's entirely possible to be overwhelmed and everything you're doing matters? That's the point of this story. Good work matters, but what does it look like when we start to feel overwhelmed by the work, but it's work that we can't quit? We can't just flush it, right? What does it look like? I'm talking to you, parents. <laughs> what does it look like? Teachers, law enforcement, first responders, right? What does it look like when we feel so overwhelmed by the work? So the first observation there in your notes, sometimes blessing is accompanied by complexity and difficulty. Sometimes blessing is accompanied by complexity and difficulty. Look back with me in verse 10. Jethro comes, he hears what's going on, he he hears what's happened and he sees what's going on. He says in verse 10, "'Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh.'" Remember, they are not far from Egypt. So he understands what he's saying. He understands the significance of this. "'Has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians.'" And then, I mean, that's a significant enough story, right? Listen, this is Moses' father-in-law saying to him, like, what's happened is significant. What you're seeing among you is a God thing. This is a God thing. And I know you probably know that, but I just want to say this out loud, and maybe it's a reminder to you that God is with you. That's not the end of the story, though. Look with me in verse 11. I love this. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, and because in this affair they they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Listen. We believe it's entirely possible that this is the point where Jethro puts his faith in Yahweh. Now I understand. Time out. For those of you who have been a part of the first five sermons here, do you remember this was one of the themes that God was trying to communicate to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the Israelites? I'm the God above all gods. This is the message of this narrative. And Jethro got it. By the way, we heard as as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, we saw that there were some Egyptians who believed. There were some Egyptians who were spared from the Passover uh, carnage that kind of happened, right? The death of the firstborn, and who likely left Egypt with them. This is another example of non-Jewish people, early example, non-Jewish people putting their faith in Yahweh. God has extended this net far and wide, and sometimes blessing is accompanied by complexity and difficulty. Did you know that some of the complexity in your life comes from the fact that you've been blessed? Have you figured that out? That when God starts blessing you, sometimes you get new problems to solve? We're we're having to do this as a church. We're trying to, because we don't always know how many people are going to show up, but we're trying to figure out how does we make sure everybody has a parking space and has a seat to sit in. And last week I was standing in the back and there were plenty of seats over here. And I was standing in the back and and I think we were maybe singing the first song. And all of a sudden it was like there was a parade. (laughs) I mean, just people kept coming. I'm like, God, that's amazing. But also, we've got something more to figure out, don't we? That's not just true for this church and it's not just true in my life. That's true for you. Sometimes blessing is accompanied by complexity and difficulty. And it doesn't mean that we're complaining But it means we get some new problems to solve. We get some new opportunities to trust God, but also while we're trusting Him, we gotta figure it out. And maybe we've gotta grow and get a little bit better organized. And in fact, listen, it is possible. And I just, this is one of those times, I just wish we had the time and the ability to just pass a microphone around the room. You guys tell me your story, because we all have experienced this. Sometimes as a result of blessing, we get busier. Just do me a favor and just nod your head if you've experienced that before. Okay, yeah, right. We get fractured. There's a temptation to get distracted because of blessing, because of all that God's done. And it doesn't make you ungrateful. It's just the reality of the fact that we're limited as humans. Acts 6.1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint... By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Listen, was this racism? I don't know. But pay attention to the context that it happened in. What's the first part of it say? In these days, when? Listen, new problems from new numbers, right? There's a horribly crass way to say this. I think it's funny. I think it it makes me cringe a little bit. But sometimes you hear this in like leadership circles, new levels, new devils. Take that with a grain of salt. Because like I said, it's not my favorite saying, but I understand the concept behind what they're saying, which is we now get new problems to solve. By the way... In Deuteronomy, Moses would recount this story. By the way, Deuteronomy is when they're getting ready to go in and possess the land, and Moses knows he doesn't get to go with them. So he kind of—he's—he's he's old at that point. He's about to pass. He gives them this charge, and he reminds them of this story in Deuteronomy one nine through eighteen. As you continue to grow, remember what I told you, and I've told you this several weeks. They go into Egypt as a family of seventy, and they come out four hundred and some odd years later. As a nation of about six million, you think things got more complex for them? Okay, let's just say we're gonna travel for a little ways. You wanna travel with a group of 70 or a group of six million? <laughs> Everything gets more complex. God's been good to us, and things have gotten harder. It's okay to say that out loud. This is one of the things that I think Jethro is saying to Moses. We keep reading. Second observation. The first one was that sometimes blessing is accompanied by complexity and difficulty. The second observation noble work brings its own unique dangers. Look with me in verse 14. When Moses' father in law saw that he was doing for the people, he said, now, he had already seen, so he knows what Moses is doing, but he asks the question anyway out of wisdom What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit? What's the word? See, Moses missed that one word. That's the key word. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses begins to unpack. He says to his father in law, Because the people are going to inquire of God, I have, they have a dispute. They come to me, I decide, and then I teach them the statutes. I teach them the principles. I teach them this is why the decision is this. Isn't this. Doesn't this sound like great parenting? Not just this is what I decided, but this is why I decided it. These were the principles that I understand. Here's the guidance from God that would lead me to make this decision. That's all really good stuff. And Moses' father-in-law immediately busts out with what you're doing is not good. Why would he say that? Well, what Moses was doing was good. But the problem was Moses was operating without a net. Listen. If the work that you're doing is that important, then you owe it to the work to take it more seriously. I'm just telling you. These things that I've had to learn over the years as a pastor, it's not because I wanted to learn them all. But I'll tell you this, the people that I'm leading deserve for me to get over myself and learn the things that I need to learn to get better at the calling that God's placed on my life. Thank you for not saying amen. (laughs) Isn't this how we feel as parents? There are some things I like to do and some things I don't like to do, and yet as a parent, I'm just called to do the things that I'm called to do. If we're going to take this seriously, then we shouldn't be operating without a net. That's the message. Like, it's great that that you feel so pulled to this. It's great that you take it so seriously that you insist on doing it all yourself, right? But noble work really brings its own unique dangers. This is what I'm trying to tell you. It's what I was trying to say earlier. I don't want you to feel guilty because you're doing the wrong things. If you're doing the wrong things, that's a different sermon. That's not this sermon. The point of this sermon and the point of this chapter, and it's, I think it's the reason that this little story makes it into the biblical narrative. Because Moses need to be reminded, and we need to be reminded, that when we're doing really important work, we shouldn't be doing it alone. If it's that important, why are we doing it by ourselves? Noble work brings its own unique Dangers. Why? First of all, it can be exhausting. Noble work can be exhausting. Verse 18, he says, you and the people with you will certainly, what does it say? Okay. Wear yourselves out. You and the people with you are going to wear yourselves out. Literally, what he said is, fading you will fade. Fading you will fade. You're going to sink. These are all synonyms, by the way, for what he said. You're going to sink. You're going to languish. You're going to drop down. Listen, you're going to wither. I wonder how many of us in here remember Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the wrong kind of counsel and doesn't sit with the right people. He will be like a tree. Firmly planted by streams or rivers of water. You remember what it says in verse 3? That tree's leaf does not wither. Same word. You're going to wither. I know that you feel this noble calling. I know that you feel like there, there's a level of kind of adrenaline that you, shot that you get because you know what you're doing is important. And I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. I'm just saying long-term, that's not a good way to live. The work is more important than that. And you're not doing it by yourself. Look at me. Because even if you don't have any other humans on your side, the Lord is with you. If you're doing noble important work that he's called you to then the Lord is with you and so often we take it so seriously that we're really guarded about who we invite in to help us and I get that by the way and that's not a bad thing that's the third point that we're about to observe here right be careful who you allow to help you but it can't all be up to me by myself this is not even part of the sermon, but I'm just going to give you this, right? Those of you who have been with us since the beginning, you probably didn't notice. In fact, I'm going to bet that none of you noticed. But in the first few days of Capital City Church, when we were doing this confession thing, which was new for pretty much everyone, like, "What? Well, this is weird, I've never done this before, right? We were at the other building, we weren't even meeting here yet. I did it every week. And after, I don't remember, a month or two, we started a new rhythm. And if you figured out what that is? The elders are leading the confession. I am an elder, but I'm not up here. Why? Because I want you to know who your elders are. I want you to know their faces. And I want you to know that if anything happens, if I walk out the door and get hit by a bus, or I get cancer and die, or I just do something really stupid, I hope none of those things happen. But you shouldn't wonder, well, that person's gone. Now what happens? There was no backup. There was no safety net. No, you have great elders serving you. And if we don't do that, then I built a man-centered ministry. No matter how else you want to cut it, does that crucify my ego? Yes. Yes. But a plurality of help, a team, is always a better approach. We don't want to wither. It can be exhausting. Number next, it can be overwhelming. It can be exhausting and it can be overwhelming. You can't skip by this phrase, like, right, verse 18, the thing is too heavy for you. Could I just I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I know you might be embarrassed to do that, but I just wonder how many of us in here are are busy doing a work that we feel that God has called us to, but at times we feel like the thing is just too heavy for us. I wonder how many of us would say that's true. you ever feel that way as a parent? you ever feel that way as a spouse? Do you ever feel that way about your job? God... Thank you for calling me to this, but this is just too heavy for me. Right. All the more reason why we can't do it by ourselves. All the more reason why we need to not just lean into our faith with God and and, and lean into our instruction from God and guidance from God, but we need to find some godly people to get in the trenches with us. It's overwhelming. This word heavy is a key term in the book of Exodus. It's used one, two, three, four times. I've got the, scr- the references here. Four times it's used for Pharaoh's heart. One, two, three, four, five times it's used for the plagues. And in the prior chapter, it's the same word that was used for Moses' arms. His arms were too heavy, right? This is, this is a key theme. Moses, this is so good. This is my paraphrase. Moses tells Jethro... This is so important that I can't get it wrong. And Jethro's response is, I agree. Right. You can't afford to get it wrong. So maybe you should have somebody in the hole shoveling with you. How about that, right? Heavy work should, by definition, never be lonely work. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but man, if I could just encourage you especially for whatever it is that you're trying to do, I would just ask you, have you found a mentor? Is there someone who's maybe just a step or two ahead of you, or maybe they've made it all the way through that season? Right? It's one of the reasons why here at Cap City, most of our uh, community groups aren't necessarily arranged by all the, all the people of this time of life are here and all the people of this time of life are here, because I, like I need to hear from some people who are in the season ahead of me. Right? By the way, that's a really biblical value is that older people teach younger people. Did you know that's in scripture? Generational diversity is a great thing for us. I need to have some people speaking into my life. I need to have some people speaking into this really important thing that God's called me to do. Third observation, our best hope for success lies in finding the right allies. Our best hope for success lies in finding the right right allies." Now, you knew this was coming if we hadn't read it in the story, but we did read it in the story. So, back in verse 19, Jethro says, "...Obey my voice, I'll give you advice and God be with you. You represent the people and warn them," verse 20, right, "...make them know the way in which they must walk." Which is, by the way, almost a verbatim repetition back to Moses of what it was he said he was doing. This is Jethro's way of saying, hey, what you're doing is important, but you can't do all of it, right? Verse 21, moreover, look for able men and from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over people as chiefs, and let them take care of the little things, and you take care of the overall bigger picture direction. Here's the kind of people that you need help from very quickly. Eric ends in his great uh, commentary on the book of Exodus. He, he says this, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Here's what he says. You need to find the right partners. He says, cap- talks about capability. You need to find capable men. So capability, spirituality, people who fear God, integrity, the word trustworthy is literally men of truth. That's not just the truth in general, That's God's truth that's integrity and then last of all incorruptibility in fact people who are not after dishonest gain you can't do it all yourself you can care deeply about things without engaging in all of them personally I was sitting on the back row this morning worshiping and thinking about how much this makes sense to me because this is what we do with our kids I mean literally this is what I do with my boys One's in here, one's serving in the back of the nursery this morning. But I thought about the men in this room who are pouring into my two boys. I thought about William Barron, and I thought about Marshall, and I thought about Isaac Tarwater. How great is this, right? I think about Jaden. I think about Doug Benura, Tom Bryan. You can call me a sappy parent if you want to, and maybe I am one. But in my mind, they are my partners. They are helping me in the most important work that I will do, which is raising godly men. And those are their teachers, and those are their youth workers. And Doug and Tom, when those boys step on the football field, Randall Bond is here, when those, Coach Kenner, When they step on the football field, they're not just learning to light somebody up, which is part of football. Can I get a witness? But do it the right way. Play by the rules. Play with integrity. Don't mouth off. Don't be cocky. I love this. These are my partners. They may not think of themselves that way, but I think of them that way. You know why? Because I can't teach my kids everything they need to know. I can't. I have to have partners. And that's just, that's such a simple example. That's just such low-hanging fruit. How do we not pick this principle up and drop it in different areas of our life? I need some help because the work's important. I need some help. You can care deeply about things without engaging in everything personally. And in fact, you had better figure out how to do that. Because you can't engage personally in everything that you care about deeply. You don't have enough time. So, to close this down, then we're going to pray together. To close this down, verse 23 shows us the outcome that we're all after, right? Look with me in verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you. Check this out. And two things are going to happen. Number one, you will be able to endure. Unpack that. Listen. In the context of whatever calling in your life that you've been thinking about while I've been preaching this message, you've had some examples in your life that you've thought about. Now unpack with me. Dream with me of a day when you will be able to endure. In other words, you're going to stay healthy and the situation's going to stay healthy. This is the outcome that we're after. Listen. Listen. This is a heavy statement for me. It's been a heavy statement for me for 30 years. I want to finish well. I want to finish well. I just want to finish being faithful. That's not up to me. That's not in my hands. I have a role to play, but ultimately I need to live with wisdom. And I need to throw myself on the mercy of the God of the universe. Man, oh man, if I could have that, the path to health, you will be able to endure. But that's not it. You see, there's a second one. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. It's the path to health, and it's the path to justice. I remind you of the definition of biblical justice, which is one of our values here as a church. We want to live with justice toward those around us, Justice means we do what's right by them. Not always what they expect. Not always what they want. But as defined by the God of the universe, we do what's right by them. By the way, that's what it means to lead well. That's what it means to to operate in agape love. We do what's best for those involved. Not my own personal preference. That's not leadership. That's narcissism not my own personal preference, but what do they need? I want to live with justice. I want to lead with justice. I want to operate toward those around me with justice. So we're going to pray through Psalm 46. It's just three verses, verses 1, 2, and 7. I put it up here so you can see it. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though we're overwhelmed by good work, right? Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And then verse 7 says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You're not alone in the work. God's with you. And he wants to help you surround yourself with the right people, with godly people who can hold your arms up when they're weary and help you move forward towards the outcome that he's after.